Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter, the podcast that takes many of the important issues of our times and explores the intellectual trends that shape how we think about them today. I'm Alistair Donald from the educational charity Ideas Matter. I'm the convener of Living Freedom, an initiative that seeks to renew freedom through education and debate. In this episode, we feature the lecture Freedom of Conscience, 21st Century Challenges. This is the first in a series of talks that were recorded at Living Freedom Summer School 2023, and which you'll be able to listen to on this podcast over the coming episodes. The Summer School, which took place in London at the end of June, gathered together 75 young adults from across the UK and also Europe and North America. Over the course of three days, they explored the historic ideals and contemporary ideas that inform our view of freedom. For many centuries, in religious and secular times alike, societies have wrestled with social, cultural and moral dilemmas as to how we should live in accordance with our innermost thoughts and beliefs. Issues related to conscience-based freedoms are very much back in the news today. For example, there have been questions over politicians that hold traditional or religious beliefs and who want to stand for high office. There's been pressure on individuals to conform to various new culture values, for example, around taking the knee. And there's issues thrown up by legislation being developed around assisted dying and conversion therapy. So what should we understand by the term freedom of conscience? And why is it so important? What constitutes the legitimate exercise of conscience and what are the main threats to conscience-based freedoms today? To look at these issues and more, our lecturer is Professor Frank Faraday, a sociologist and social commentator and the author of many books including On Tolerance, A Defence of Moral Independence. Uh, Good evening everybody. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the uh, philosophical or theological dimensions of conscience. If you're interested in that, we can raise that in the discussion. I just want to go right straight into the question of the freedom of conscience, how we should view it, what are the problems uh, that are raised by it. Because of all the freedoms that I know, from the freedom of speech to the freedom to act in accordance with your inclination, the freedom of movement, the freedom of conscience is really the most difficult, most complex one uh, to kind of uh, engage with. In most commentaries on the freedom of conscience, it is said that it's actually the first freedom of early modernity from which all other modern li- liberties and freedoms are developed. As I will make clear in the course of my lecture or discussion, that's not actually quite right. But nevertheless, the freedom of uh, conscience is logically prior to other freedoms. Logically, but not chronologically. Because it would take a long time before this freedom would be recognized, and certainly even longer before it becomes codified as something that's akin to a right, something that uh, is is recognized in uh, legal jurisdictions. One of the problems with the freedom of conscience discussion is that in the minds of many authors and in many, many people, conscience is very much seen as integral to religion and faith. And when people uh, talk about the freedom of conscience, they often think about it in relation to the freedom to exercise your religious belief or to act on the basis of your religious belief. It is that, but of course it's much more than that because the whole idea of conscience is not something 
uh, that is confined to uh, a religious or a theological experience, it is something much more uh, fundamental than that. And it's quite important to understand that if you look at the way that uh, our ideals of conscience has evolved and our understanding of it has become uh, increasingly more nuanced and sophisticated, it becomes very clear that our conscience, by the way, it's not like your heart or a physical entity. You, if you take my body apart, you're not going to find my conscience. It is actually a, a metaphor, a very useful metaphor, uh, that uh, captures the dimension of our subjective experience. Our conscience is shaped, first of all, through uh, prevailing cultural norms, cultural norms that tells us what is right and what is wrong, that uh, in a sense gives us a, a sense of meaning, a web of meaning to which we interpret our experience. So that's one side of the influence that's exercised on our conscience, but it's also shaped by our personal inclinations and our thoughts. So although I think everybody in this room would agree that our conscience dictates that it's wrong to murder somebody, it's wrong to steal, nevertheless, in terms of the uh, personal uh, sort of uh, and, uh, and internal uh, thoughts that we have on matters, we will find that there are uh, big variations, there are differences in, in the way that we react and the way we respond to particular challenges that uh, demands the exercise of our conscience. So it's these two elements that you've got to see working together, almost interweaving to create what will become our conscience. So it's, it's not just simply about what my religion or what my community tells me, but about internalizing these norms and sentiments through a very personal conversations or conversation I have within the domain of my internal life. And one of the things that uh, we often overlook, and it's very, very important, is that uh, in any society, uh, we are, you know, uh, human beings are continually having an internal dialogue, an internal conversation with themselves. We go home and say, you know, I remember saying, Frank, why did I do that? I should have said that. Why did I mistakenly insult somebody when I should have been much more forgiving? You know, after the event, we're all really good at seeing the light, whereas at that particular moment when we're confronted with a situation where it's not, not exactly clear what kind of choices we make. And one of the most important uh, element that uh, develops our humanity and, and makes our humanity not just a, an abstract quality, but something that we live as a person, is that we conduct an internal dialogue. I know that some people rarely do that, or, or maybe not do that at all, but they usually become psychopaths or um, people something akin to that. So the question of, any, of, of the capacity of having an internal dialogue with yourself is really as important as the conversation that we have with each other. And it makes uh, our humanity and our subjectivity uh, become more mature, more grown up, becomes much more something that uh, becomes a, a medium through which we begin to act on the world in, in a potentially constructive uh, kind of a way. So, when we think about the whole internalization of cultural norms or religious thoughts, always remember that there is this important moment 
when we internalize that through the conversations uh, that uh, in our solitude we conduct with ourselves. Now, one of the problems with conscience is that no matter what society you live in, I cannot think of any society that's an exception to that, it is always under threat. It is always subject to being challenged. Uh, and the reason for that is because our personal convictions of what is right and what is wrong very often come up against the external demands imposed by forces within society. And I always remember when I was, I was 16 years old and I had just joined the Canadian Army, uh, one, of, one of my many mistakes that I made in my life. And when I joined the Army, we had all these uh, briefings and discussions. And I always remember my captain telling me, you know, sort of, that some of you might feel that it is against your conscience to kill. Some of you might feel that it is against your conscience to do some bad things to the people on the other side of the, uh, of the conflict, conflictual divide. But nevertheless, you have no choice but to do it. Right? You know, we're not a bunch of peaceniks. We're not a bunch of pacifists. You've got to do the business. And I remember thinking about it. Uh, and uh, as a 16-year-old, you're still very immature. Well, I was very <laughs> immature and naive. And you kind of think that it's a, it's a, a, a very easy uh, issue, a very easy moral question to resolve. You join the army you, and this and that. But the minute you think about it, you realize that actually your, uh, your conscience, your, your inner sen sensibility can very easily come into conflict with demands imposed on, upon you externally that you find uh, sort of violates what you're really all about. And, and that's an extreme example, but there are numerous other cases when we are confronted with making decisions that we don't like. Uh, we know in, in our hearts uh, that uh, you know, you're doing this for your career, you're doing this because you want to be popular, you're doing this because that's what your parents or your community expects of, of you, but nevertheless, you, know, you feel inside that it is not quite right, and we use expressions like, uh, I couldn't live with my conscience if I did this, or I'm wrestling with my conscience, or we even use expressions which I think is very sweet, you know, a, a, a guilty conscience, a conscience that is actually guilty because you violated your own beliefs in the course of action. So the external imposition upon our lives is something that we experience all the time, and that acts uh, as a constraint uh, upon our behavior. I, want, I just want to say in passing, although this is not the point in my lecture, is that the more we're able to kick back against it, the more we're able to say, actually, I'm not going to allow those external forces to violate who I am or what my beliefs are, the more uh, strong we become, the more independent-minded we become, uh, the more mature we become in being able to deal with the problems that are thrown at us. So I do think that even when it, even, even it's, at the risk of unpopularity, at the risk of doing things that aren't going to advance your career, now and again, we have no choice but to kick back in those moments and not just simply roll over to, to, to those kinds of demands. So in the uh, Hebrew scriptures, conscience is typically understood as the feeling in one's heart 
or the voice of God in one's soul? And uh, that raises a number of questions as to the difference between the soul and the conscience. I'm not going to go into that because that would require a couple of other lectures. But basically what uh, the Hebrew scriptures tell us is that these interior reflective and guiding aspects of our, uh, of our feelings and of our emotions are really at the, uh, at the, uh, remain at the core idea of what consciousness is really all about. And within the Judeo-Christian tradition, as it evolves, there is a continuous tension between uh, those religious traditions and conscience. There's always a tension between your soul and your interior world and your, and, and your, and your feeling about what is right and wrong and the dogma of any particular religion or, or, or philosophy that you kind of have to live with. This is important to realize because um, the Judeo-Christian tradition claims to uphold the idea of conscience, and in a sense it does. But at the same time, when push comes to shove, very often it finds it difficult to do that consistently. And as in most cases, it becomes very, very selective. So for example, if any of you study the writings of St. Thomas of Aquinas, who is you know, you know, really one of the key thinkers in, of the uh, Christian tradition, uh, a really important figure in terms of uh, bringing together uh, Christianity, the insights of Christianity with the insights of, of Greek philosophy at a, at a very early point, he basically argued that, uh, that, that conscience uh, is important, even an erring conscience binds, he says. So even when you make a mistake through your conscience, it still binds people together. However, at the same time as recognizing and being so liberal in, in some sense in the way he conceptualized conscience, he said he supported the persecution of heretics. So the people that uh, were heretical to the Catholic Church uh, uh, somehow were denied by him the right to their conscience. And clearly there was a, there was a, a tension there between the idea of conscience uh, and the need to obey the teaching of the church. Something that will reoccur time and time again, not just in the religious domain, but also in the secular domain in the subsequent uh, centuries. So. I would suggest that throughout the medieval era, the idea of conscience exists in a relatively primitive form. It's something that uh, used as a metaphor, but in terms of its implications, it will take early modernity for that to really kick in. And when it kicks in, it changes the world. And the moment at which our idea of conscience really becomes radical, uh, becomes a really radical ideal, happens in the course of the Reformation. And the man that's most associated with this new idea of conscience is Luther, of all people. Uh, and, and it's really worth studying Luther. I know that some of you don't like Luther. Uh, I, I, I'm, I think very highly of him, even though I'm not a Protestant. I think that his contribution to the other countries is really uh, breathtakingly important. But when Luther said, uh, in defiance to the, to the Catholic Church, as it was the Roman Church, 
as he was at that time, and he said, here I stand, so help me God, I can do no other. Uh, he basically said that, you know, I cannot do anything other than to rebel against the way that the Roman church is run. It's something that I feel very strongly uh, that kind of drives me to challenge the rituals and the uh, practices of the Roman church. And in a sense, it doesn't really matter where he actually said those words. He probably didn't, but it sounds really good. Here I stand, so help me go. I wish I had, I had invented that for myself. Um, but Luther preceded me in that. Um, uh, nevertheless, uh, he basically did not merely assert the authority of individual conscience to justify his own action, but he also advanced a compelling case for the value of people being able to act in accordance with the dictates of their conscience. And that was very, very important because he didn't just simply say that conscience was something that was within and you know, we could let it rest there. He actually said that you're able to and you should be able to act in accordance with the dictates of your conscience. And in so doing, his argument implicitly called into question the right of external authority to exercise power over the inner life of people. This was revolutionary, really, really revolutionary. When you're basically saying that uh, you're questioning the right of external authority to, uh, in a sense, to somehow encroach upon the inner life of people. When you're doing that, what you're doing, in effect, is you're freeing people's inner life and people's ability to recognize that and to act in accordance with that. So the distinction that Luther drew about the nature of authority represented an important milestone in the conceptualization of a new limit on its exercise. His treatise on good works, which was written in 1520, even before I was born, <laughs> asserted that the, temp the power of temporal authority, when it does right or wrong, cannot harm the soul. In other words, what I was saying was that no matter what the external authorities do, and by that he meant the state or the church, whatever they do, it cannot really harm your soul. It cannot really harm your conscience. There is a difference between your soul and your conscience, but for, for, for the purpose of discussion, we can use it a little bit uh, interchangeably. And this idealization of the soul and its protected status from external authority encouraged European culture to devote great interest in individual conscience and eventually to endow the self with authority. So something very original and new kicked in in Western civilization that has got no precedence anywhere else in the world, suddenly the potential for the authorization of the self for the individual emerges, it crystallizes into a relatively powerful force. In helping to free the inner person from the power of external authority, Luther's theology contributed to the weakening of the very concept of external authority, including divine authority. 
Luther didn't want to do that. Luther didn't set out to be a revolutionary. The last thing that he wanted was to let this powerful force escape and uh, go get into the, to the, into the real world. But nevertheless, by undying the inner life of people with great moral status, he created a situation where authority itself would be uh, put into question. So basically, something very important occurs where Luther's protection of the soul from secular imposition led to what I call the paradox of inner freedom and external domination. So the paradox basically is, is that from that point onwards, almost everybody had to recognize, not just Protestantism, but everybody had to recognize the importance of conscience and the importance of the freedom of conscience. But at the same time, recognizing that is one thing, because you had to also preserve a form of external authority that was higher than that of the individual. And that tension, that paradox between these two different elements would be uh, one of the most important themes in European history in the 17th, 18th, 19th, and even the 20th century, this coexistence of inner freedom and external domination. So I would suggest that this coexistence could not uh, live forever in a peaceful kind of a way. One of them had to give way to the other. And the recognition of a sphere where political rule could not legitimately coerce the individual ultimately undermined the status of absolutist authority in all spheres. And it soon became clear that once individuals are granted inner freedom, they find it difficult to unquestioningly obey any form of authority. So basically, what you have is a, is a, is a long process. It will take a few centuries to work out where the freedom of conscience in the way that the Reformation conceptualized it, would eventually, in the 19th, but especially in the 20th century, be understood by many as the authorization of the self. That the self was something that was important in and of itself. And just to anticipate the discussion, that would raise all kinds of problems. Because once you move towards the authorization of self, it's only a very small step, well, not such a small step, it would take about 100 years for that authorization of the self to kind of mutate itself into an it's all about me culture, right? Where it's me, 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 a kind of not, uh, Western narcissism that is now so clearly institutionalized in the Anglo-American world. But that's just jumping ahead by a few hundred years. So when Luther suggested that he could not but obey his individual conscience, he provided the basis for an argument that was soon perceived as subversive. The very suggestion that individual conscience could oppose external authority would in years to come crystallize into the affirmation of the ideal of individual freedom, which is why the English historian Christopher Hill went so far as to claim that the essence of Protestantism the priesthood of all believers 
was logically a doctrine of individual anarchy. That's the way, and the, in many respects, we saw this played out in the English Civil War, where essentially small Protestant sects were basically giving two fingers to every form of authority and, and actually acting out uh, precisely the dynamic that Christopher Hill talked about. Now, I want you to want to make one point clear, which is that Luther's idealization of conscience should not be confused with acknowledging the freedom of conscience. I mean, Luther never recognized the freedom of conscience as a right. right? The idea of conscience, uh, freedom of conscience being a right would only emerge much, much later, uh, would really only emerge in the, uh, first in America, but later in Europe in the 20th century. So it would be a huge, you know, long road from recognizing the uh, moral status of conscience uh, and, and the freedom of, of people to uh, act in accordance with it to the right to a freedom of conscience. That would take a long, long, long time. I think the, the wars of religions that were being fought by Catholics and Protestants in the 17th and even the 18th century showed that, in a sense, they didn't really recognize each other's right to uh, religious conscience and to act in accordance with it. And so the really interesting thing that kicks in, and this is often overlooked by philosophers who deal with the freedom of conscience, is that for the right of conscience to work, for there to be a, a right, uh, freedom of conscience being a right, you needed the development of another idea. What I would argue a much more important idea <coughs> than the freedom of conscience, which is the idea of tolerance. And the idea of tolerance is actually one of the most difficult, one of the most difficult cultural accomplishments that emerged in the course of European modernity. Because everybody I know is for tolerance, except in those cases when they feel it's not good to be tolerant. And it's usually in relation to people whose views they don't like. And one of the most interesting things about tolerance is that people are very selective in what they tolerate and what they're not. And in fact, John Locke, John Locke and Pierre Bay, who are the, the main philosophers associated with the idea of tolerance, John Locke was very clear on this. John Locke says uh, in his uh, letters on tolerance, a wonderful text, the first clear argument supporting tolerance, he basically says, we, we tolerate everybody's views, uh, uh, everybody's belief, everybody's got the right to believe, and we're not going to interfere with that, except in two cases. One is except in the case of Catholics, <laughs> and the reason why Catholics would not be tolerated is because their loyalty was to the Pope in England, and therefore they couldn't be trusted. And then secondly, in the case of atheists, because neither could you trust an atheist, given the fact that they had no recognition of the divine order. So even John Locke, you know, who is you know, quite incredibly ahead of his time, even he had certain limits on it. And that's more or less the case today, that tolerance uh, is something, uh, I mean, I always make the point that most people, especially in our political class and cultural elites, always say, I believe in tolerance, but, and it's what comes after the but that is really, really important. Uh, the qualifications uh, that you, you placed on that. 
So the, I would argue that the freedom of conscience could only harden into something akin to a right once tolerance, which basically means that you tolerate the views of people that you dislike, you despise, you hate. That's what tolerance is really all about. You allow those people to have those ideas. Until that ideal is, is accepted, conscience itself hasn't got very much room to mature into something uh, that would become akin to the right. So tolerance is in intimately connected to the assertion of this most basic dimension of freedom and demands that we de accept the right of people to live in accordance with beliefs and, op and opinions that are different and sometimes antithetical to ours. And the way that I see it, once the idea of tolerance became accepted in large parts of first in Western Europe, also in, in Transylvania, as it happens, one of the first places where tolerance was uh, accepted, surprise, surprise, the place where Unitarianism uh, emerges as this very tolerant form of uh, sort of Protestant sect. Once tolerance begins to uh, emerge, then, of course, you have the precondition for the exercise of the freedom of conscience. From the standpoint of tolerance, there are no admissible limitations to this freedom as long as personal convictions are not imposed on others and do not harm other people. And that goes for conscience too, that you, know, you are able to act in accordance with your conscience as long as you don't impose them on other people, right? and as long as those actions do not harm other people. One of the most remarkable uh, events that occurs in the history of conscience, and it's often overlooked, took place in the United States. In 1785, one of the founders of the United States, James Madison, who was acutely aware of the dangers inherent in the religious political conflicts in Europe, wrote, the religion then of every man must be left to conviction and conscience. This right is in its nature an unalienable right. I always get emotional when I read those words. And uh, when he became, uh, when, when he wrote the First Amendment of the American Constitution, he placed religious liberty and freedom of conscience right in there, because he saw that as being paramount for the new nation, which what the United States would become. And in the, in the American Constitution, right from the very beginning, the old Reformation idea of the right of conscience was finally codified for the first time. Uh, in a way that it, it wouldn't be done in Europe until much, much later on. It's in the 19th century that the contemporary version of conscience begins to emerge. And I always tell people, I don't teach universities anymore, I always tell them to read Hegel's Philosophy of Right, where he wrote, conscience is the deepest internal solitude from which both limit and the external have disappeared. And he's talking about the inner voice of conscience uh, uh, that we hear is not the voice of God, but the voice of our own self. And Hannah Arendt, the political philosopher, would add to that, that uh, the conversation between I and me are the different and conflicting views we hold together. That is where the idea of wrestling with your conscience 
really kind of comes about. We struggle with our conscience and develop a sense of right and wrong, uh, and our moral sensibility emerges from that. Now, one of the problems today is that when it comes to the whole idea of inner conversation, in our medicalized world, that's seen as bad. So you might have seen all these articles and reports being published on loneliness and all these articles being written about how loneliness is a medical problem, a pathology. And they tell you, you know, if you're lonely, that's the same as if you smoke 30 cigarettes a day in terms of its health impact. Weird idea. But it shows you that when you've got you know, public health obsessions, anything can be a public health problem. And in a sense, what they misinterpret is what they call loneliness can actually be experienced as solitude. And solitude is not something that's a health problem. Solitude is actually a moment or a, a period in our life where we can sit down and, and talk to ourselves and develop a certain moral imagination that we need to get on with life. Okay, so what are the threats to our conscience? Um, well, there's a number of threats to our conscience and to the freedom of conscience. But the most important is the idea that developed in the 1960s, which basically argued that the personal is political. Right? The personal is political. And basically, if the personal is political, then what you're doing is you're eroding the distinction between public life and private life. And if your private life becomes politicized, in other words, if your private life becomes subject to discussion and debate, then it takes away from you your personal initiative. If your private life is something that everybody's got big opinions on, and, and basically everybody can pronounce on and discuss and debate, as if we, in the way we discuss and debate taxation or health policy, then what you're doing is you're essentially robbing people of the capacity to, to, for moral independence. Because moral independence which is so much what underpins conscience, requires that you, you're, in a sense, shielded from the kind of external pressures of everyday life. And in a sense, the personal political, which emerged in the 60s, was bad enough. But in the 21st century, we see something even worse than the personal is political, even worse than the breakdown of the private-public distinctions. What we see increasingly is the project by our cultural elites of colonizing our internal life, of actually not just telling us what to say, what is it we can say and what we cannot say, but also what we think and how we should think. And you get that most clearly in universities where you get these workshops that are meant to raise awareness. You know, we're here to raise your awareness, which is another way of saying we're here to tell you what to think. We're aware, you're not. But to become aware, this is how you've got to see the world. And essentially, inviting themselves in, into our internal life. So these trainers and these aware people basically presume that because of their superior knowledge, they have the moral authority to treat your, your internal life in the way that a doctor does when you break a bone or when you have a, a physical impairment. 
And that's a tremendous change because that has never happened. Not even, I mean, I grew up, I, I was nine when I left a Stalinist Hungary. Not even in, under Stalinist Hungary, in the worst totalitarian moment, was there such a concerted attempt to colonize our minds as there is now in a much softer political and a much softer totalitarian setting. Right? It is weird when you actually think about this particular development. And when you look at the way in which uh, indoctrination, uh, sort of, uh, which, is, which kind of masquerades as raising awareness, the way that's used up and down society, you realize that something very important occurs because what, we, what they're doing is they're challenging people's internal convictions. They're basically challenging people's right to determine for themselves how they say, how they see their beliefs. And through consent classes, training classes, therapeutic intervention, the inner life of all of us becomes subject to medicalization. To medicalization, and medicalization, as you all know, always serves as a prelude to further intervention. Always does in every single case. We see a situation, for example, where so-called science, I'm a big believer in science, but I should say scientism is then used to trump moral reasoning. Moral reasoning is our most important faculty as mature individuals. It's something that we have to preserve and we have to uphold because unless we are able to make judgments about what is right and what is wrong, we are deprived of some of the most elementary aspects of public citizenship. But when science comes in and scientific arguments tells us you cannot do that, you know, when they tell Muslims and Jews that you cannot uh, have halal meat or you cannot have kosher meat because we don't like the way you guys cut, you know, kill a, a particular animal, you know, forgetting the fact that Muslims and Jews have been doing this ritual for thousands of years and it's part and parcel of what they do, you're basically saying stop being Jewish and stop being Muslim. And that's really ultimately what they're saying in the guise of med uh, medicalized knowledge. When they tell, for example, Jews and Muslims that you can no longer circumcise young babies, even though that's been done for thousands of years, and even in the Old Testament and in the Quran, there are very clear statements about that this is what a Jew and a, and a Muslim does. If you tell people you cannot do that because medical science says this, then what you're doing is you're essentially saying that it doesn't matter what your beliefs are, you know, science uh, sort of trumps them. When you tell, for example, uh, Christian medical uh, professionals who are anti-abortion that they've got to perform an abortion regardless of, you know, regardless of their opposition to it, there's no choice about it. What they're basically saying is that the beliefs of these medical professionals do not count for anything because this is what is expected of uh, a, a, a medicalized kind of world. And I think that one of the things that we find is, is that this can go a long, long, long way towards inhibiting any form of moral thinking. I was in Helsinki a few weeks ago, and I was talking to this Finnish member of parliament, this 
elder lady. Sleepful, I call her elderly lady. She's probably 20 years younger than me. <laughs> but as you get old, that's how you react. Anyways, she has been taken to court for six months, interrogated uh, by the police on three different occasions, because she basically read, read out testaments from the, old, from the Old Testament, from the Bible, which basically argued that in the Bible, this is the view that Christian tradition takes of gay marriage. And under the Finnish law, to basically say that, say what she said, and all she read, all she did was to read a few passages from the Bible can be uh, sort of uh, criminalized under hate law legislation. In other words, you know, in Finland, you can't read out certain passages of the Bible, which, as far as I understand it, is a foundational document uh, for most people in the Judeo-Christian tradition. We are getting hit by some kind of uh, legal response to that. So, what I'm really trying to sort of get at, and this is the problem that we're confronted with, is that we live in an unusual world where moral reasoning and, and, and the language of morality uh, has been uh, denuded of any kind of positive qualities. And whenever we talk about morality, we talk about moralizers, we talk about, oh, you just... Uh, moralizing and, mor and, and, and the moral language is actually a, just a, a myth. There's nothing substantial to it. What you're really saying is that there's actually little escape, little space for conscience. Because if you are saying that moral, uh, moral discourse is something that is trumped by other narratives, if you're saying that a moral discourse is something you want to marginalize, what you're essentially saying that uh, there is very little escape for conscience to uh, have any kind of uh, meaning and, and, and recognition in the public space. And the most important manifestation of this, and I've, I've been talking about this for a very long time, but it's really kicked in stronger than ever before, is that if you are, if you are even discouraged from making moral judgments, if you basically uh, decry moral judgments as somehow bad, in the United States they call people who make moral judgments judgy, and people who are judgy are by definition seen as negative individuals. And if, as in the United States and in England, non-judgmentalism is upheld as a virtue, in other words, non-judgmentalism, the idea that we don't make judgments, in a sense we don't say this is right and, what, and this is wrong, what we are saying, in effect, is that the exercise of conscience is redundant. I mean, what's the point of having a, con a conscience if you're not able to make judgments and act in accordance with those kinds of judgments? What's the point of conscience if we are told that those people who have strong moral beliefs about a variety of different kind of issues are, are somehow second-class citizens or somehow inferior to those people who are non-judgmental. In those circumstances, conscience itself becomes almost like a, a rhetorical accomplishment whose substance has been sucked away by this demoralized culture and this demoralized language that we use. And in that sense, like other uh, freedoms that I'm sure we'll be discussing in the next few days, its content becomes lost altogether. It becomes a paper freedom. 
an entirely paper freedom and an entirely paper right. And the intolerance that is invited by non-judgmentalism and the intolerance that uh, is invited by the medicalization of everyday life is such that there is far less uh, space for expressing moral sentiments than during the 20th or the 19th century. I'm not allowed, uh, for example, in some uh, jurisdictions, in some constituencies, to basically tell somebody that uh, what I see is not they or them or some other kind of pronoun, but what I see is she or he. Because if in Ontario, in Canada, in other places, you misgender somebody, then that's uh, seen as almost the equivalent of a kind of thought crime. And the punishment for that isn't that you get a life sentence in jail, but the punishment for that is, many, is, is being ostracized, losing your job, losing your professions, something that we experience in many, many places. So the point I want to get at is that the battle for taking conscience seriously is to revisit the argument for tolerance. We've got to give tolerance a content, a radical content, that is unequivocally for real tolerance, that refuses to be selective in who we tolerate, that recognizes that uh, our conscience, our ability to exercise our conscience, depends on tolerance being uh, recognized and institutionalized. And most importantly, and I know this is, doesn't sound very radical, but it is almost revolutionary in its consequence, most importantly, we have to make people aware that we need to revert to the use of a moral language. That the language of morality is not 18th century or 19th century. It's not something that is old, old, it's old foggies who have no imagination. But the language of morality is the prerequisite for all of us to be able to conduct a civilized, humane life. You know, one of the things I recognize uh, in this particular moment, when I think of issues like conscience and tolerance and the devaluation of a moral imagination, is that it raises questions that are almost civilizational in its consequence. The human civilization emerged through the whole process of human beings generation after generation making judgments, making mistakes in the course of that, developing a moral sensibility, a certain sensitivity that was really extremely uh, imaginative and, and extremely uh, exciting in the 19th, 20th century. And we're in danger of losing that, or at least we're in danger of developing a kind of historical amnesia where we no longer are in touch with the intellectual legacy of all the generations that preceded us. And I think it's for that reason that the question of conscience is something that all of us need to take seriously and take forward if we're going to create a future that's worthy of the kind of uh, struggles that our ancestors have led over the centuries. Thank you.
You've been listening to Professor Frank Faraday give the lecture Freedom of Conscience, 21st Century Challenges. It was the first in a new series of talks recorded at Living Freedom Summer School 2023. We'll be back soon with the second lecture in this series, Freedom in the Age of Identity Politics, by Dr Joanna Williams. Don't forget to subscribe to this Ideas Matters podcast on your favourite podcast feed. And if you can, then we'd be grateful if you could leave us a positive review. If you'd like to find out more about Living Freedom, then do head to our website, livingfreedom.org.uk. And finally, if you feel that you can help us out financially with a donation, large or small, then please hit the donate button while you're there. Thanks, and we'll be back soon. Thank you.